All right, so we are a picture-taking society. We, we love taking pictures, and we, already ha- we all, always have, but it's become so much easier with our smartphones and, and, and everything we have. When I was growing up, you know, starting to love taking pictures, I think I was in high school, I had my pocket Kodak Instamatic camera. It was with its vinyl case and its 110 cartridge film, you know, just, and, I, and the little magic cube that you get four flash pictures out of the little magic cube. Do you remember this? Anybody who remember this? And, and so, you know, you'd go on vacation and you'd bring your little camera along, which I would do, and you'd be away from some exotic place, some great place in the mountains or visiting somewhere, and you would have like a choice. You'd have 24 pictures you could take because that's all you had in your little pocket Instamatic. And then you would take those pictures very carefully, very judiciously, make sure you got all the right ones, and then you'd wait like a month to get them back. And then you would see that most of them were terrible. You know, you didn't take any good pictures. But you would show everybody and everyone would pretend to be interested in all that stuff. And you know, it was, it was fun. That, that was back then. Now you take pictures all the time. How many of you took some pictures this week? Anybody take some pictures this week? You post them on Facebook, Instagram, they're everywhere. We are a picture-taking society. So let me show you a couple pictures just in my last week. Uh, last Thursday and Friday, I took my wife down to Pacific Grove. Uh, we took a little selfie there, uh, just sitting out on the beach. One of her favorite places, one of my favorite places too, and I love being with her wherever we go. And so that was last Thursday. We were just sitting out on the beach down there, a little couple days off, and just wonderful time. Came back, uh, had a great weekend of ministry, loved last Sunday services, sat in all the services here, enjoyed, served, and just had a great time. Monday, my good friend Cuneo invited me to a Warriors game, and I love the Warriors. Here's a picture of some of my friends. I've got a picture here with David Lee. And, uh, you know, I look at this and I go, I am such a shrimp. I can't believe how small I am. They look, you know, they look normal size on TV. You stand next to them, they're giants. And then Festus is Zeely. I got a picture with Festus here. And, and you know, I, I've, I, Stephen Curry is my favorite basketball player of all time, not just because he's an amazing player. The guy's incredible, but he's also a Christ follower. He puts Christ first in his life. And I've just followed him a little bit in his own life, the things he does. And I've wanted to get a picture with him. Well, uh, I, I didn't get a picture with him, but I got a picture with his wife. This is Aisha. That's Aisha Curry. <laughs> And, and the guy with Cuneo goes, hey, there's Aisha Curry. You want to get a picture with her? I go, yes, I would love to. So we go over and, and he introduces her, me to her. He says, or to her to me, he says, this is, uh, have, you, have you ever seen the church with the three crosses right there on the freeway? She said, no. I said, he, he said, oh, it's right in Castro Valley and this is the pastor. And, and I said, Aisha, it's such a privilege to meet you. I pray for you and your husband. I pray for your ministry and just love what you guys do. My wife loves your cooking show and all this stuff. Just had a nice little exchange. She thanked me and we had that moment. And then she walked away and I said to Cuneo, my friend, I said, how do you know her? And he goes, I don't. I just, <laughs> I just recognized her. So, okay, so anyway, and then, then coming off of Monday, then Tuesday night, we had a birthday party for my mother-in-law, my sweet mother, Mary, uh, the only mother in my life these days, and I just love her so much, and we just had a wonderful time. You know, you take pictures. You take pictures of things that you love, places that you love, wherever you go, that, you, that means something to you. And when you come to the Gospels, you find pictures of Jesus. Now, they're not like videotape replays, because all the Gospel writers have different perspectives about the life of Jesus, 
And that's why you'll read in one gospel a particular focus. you read another gospel. Same story, just a little bit of a nuance because it's a different perspective. The gospels are not videotape replays. They're, they're living documents of the life of Jesus. And I love what John says at the end of his gospel in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, many other things were written about, the, uh, many other miracles Jesus did in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book, but these have been written that you might Believe that Jesus is the Christ, and by believing you might have life in his name. The gospel record gives to us a picture and a portrait of Jesus Christ so that we can have life in Jesus' name. And this morning as we come to the book of Luke, the 19th chapter, we're going to look at some pictures of Jesus' life as he's coming into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. It wasn't called Palm Sunday then. Uh, this is something that we call it because the people raised their palm branches and they, they shouted their hosannas to the Lord. This is the moment where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem where he's, he's going to have uh, the clearing of the temple, severe debates with the religious leaders, teachings and parables. Uh, he's going to be uh, uh, with his disciples in that beautiful uh, Lord's Supper moment. Uh, he's going to go out to the Garden of Pain where he's going to pray. Judas is going to betray him to the authorities. He's going to have mock trials through the night. He's going to stand before Pilate and then Herod and then back to Pilate again. He's going to be denied by his very own disciples. He's going to be flogged and crucified. And then on the, on the third day, he's going to rise again from the grave. And all of that happens between this day and next Sunday in terms of a calendar period of time. In one week's period of time, all that stuff happens. It's crazy. These are all pictures of Jesus. And this morning we're going to look at this picture of Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem. And, and it's a familiar text to most of us, I hope anyway, but I'm going to just kind of f- stop it in frames and we're going to look at the portraits, the pictures, and we're going to talk about them. So if you're taking notes, you might want to get ready and let's look at the text really carefully. Let's read it beginning in verse 28, Luke 19, 28. After Jesus had said this, he went up on ahead going up to Jerusalem As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As they went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near to the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowds said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of the Lord's coming to you. 
Okay. So I want to show you, we're going to stop the, the frames four times in this little narrative, and we're going to pick up the pictures of Jesus. And I hope you get the picture today. And the first picture I want you to see is this beginning portrait in verses 28 through 34 where Jesus uh, is instructing his disciples to go and find this cult in the city ahead. And what I want to show you in this picture, if we just sort of freeze it in the frame, I want you to see Jesus' sovereignty. What I mean by his sovereignty, I want you to see his rightful ownership over everything we possess. This has always been a little humorous part of the story to me or the narrative because I try to envision what it was like for these disciples. We don't know which disciples they were. Jesus dispatches two of them and they go into this next village, probably the village of Bethphage there on the other side of the Kidron Valley, probably about a mile and a half to two miles outside of Jerusalem. And there in the city, just as Jesus told them, there was a colt tied up just ready to be untied. And they were instructed with the fact that if somebody were to stop them, because it might feel a little strange just to be untying a colt that didn't belong to you and taking it away, that you were just to simply tell the people that the Lord had need of it. And, and that was that. And I, what I love about that is that obviously Jesus as sovereign, here's a picture of his sovereignty, he sees everything. He sees what's in front of us. He knows what we're going into. He can instruct us into the things that we can't even see. And, and in, in the bigger picture of things, we see here from Jesus' sovereignty that really everything that we have belongs to him and whenever he wants to summon it, he can. And so he tells these disciples to go get the cult and so they do and they untie it and somebody, sure enough, says, what are you doing? And they said, the Lord has need of it. I was trying to put myself in that picture. What if, what if the Lord instructed us to do that? Would we have that confidence? Like, put it into a modern day situation. You walk up to somebody driving a car and, and uh, they get out and you say, can I have the keys? And they say, why? And they say, because the Lord has need of it. I used to think that would be a great way to get a car when I was like in 16 years of age. That would be fantastic. But that would probably wind up, you know, you being arrested or, or you know, something like that. But Jesus, because he's sovereign, everything belongs to him. And, and he summons uh, the, his disciples to go and get this cult. And it, it's a beautiful picture of, of his sovereignty. There's a little play on words here. I'll show you in verse 33. If you have your own Bible there, you can look at it. In verse 33, as they were untying the cult, its owners asked them. Uh, that word owner there is kurioi in the Greek. And then it says the Lord has need of it. The word Lord there is kurios. It's a play on words because really kurios means uh, little owner. It means sort of like sub-owner. And the Lord has need of it. He's the real owner. He's, he's sovereign over all things. Everything belongs to him. That's the point. I think that's what I see in that text. And so just stop for a minute. Think about your own life. Think about the stuff that you think belongs to you Really, it, you may be the owner of it. You possess it, but there's another owner, and, the, and he's the real owner. He owns it all. He owns everything. And sometimes he actually dispatches uh, us to release it to him. And he says, it's, it's mine actually, and I need it. I need it. So here's, here's the response we give to a sovereign, sovereign Lord, Jesus. Uh, the right response is to simply give to him. Just write that down. The right response is to give to him. When we see Jesus' sovereignty, we, we give to him. This is a beautiful reflection of Jesus' deity too because only God is sovereign and Jesus here is commanding uh, 
that something that somebody possesses be used for his work and for his glory. Do you know what I find in my life and maybe you find in yours is sometimes we hold on to our stuff a little too tightly. We kind of start thinking that it belongs to us and, and we start really gauging whether or not we should release it when the Spirit of God comes and taps on our shoulder. And sometimes he does that privately in a private moment with him. Sometimes it comes through a messenger that the Lord sends to us, just like these disciples that went in and untied the colt. Sometimes God sends a messenger saying, hey, the Lord has need of this and we need to release it. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I hold onto my stuff just a little too tightly. I was reminded just a couple weeks ago, sitting out, standing out in the lobby of our church, a gentleman walked up with his family, and he said, Pastor, we have something for the church today, and we wanted to come and give it to you as a family because we talked about this during the week, and, and basically they just handed over a check that was a fairly sizable check, really wasn't the matter of the size of the check, but here's what they said. They said that we came into some, some uh, money that we didn't know about this week. We've been faithful in giving, but this was uh, something we didn't expect. It was a gift. And we want to honor the Lord with it today. And they had heard previously uh, the week before, a couple of weeks before, that we were kind of, you know, struggling a little bit in our general fund. And we're always talking about next fund. Not always talking about it, but we, talk, we remind everybody that we're still paying off that beautiful facility out there. And so they said, put half of it toward the general fund. Put half of it toward the next fund. It was just a beautiful reminder. They said, they said just that as God has blessed us, we want to bless the ministry in, a, in an above way, more than we've been doing in our own lives. And, and they wanted their kids to be a part of that moment. And it was just a special moment. But here's, here's how the Lord spoke to me about that. The Lord spoke to me about the fact that they could have easily, like all of us have had experiences where things that we didn't expect come into our hands. And sometimes we're quick to say, wow, look at what God has given me for me. And we don't think so quickly about the fact that maybe when God blesses us with something that we didn't expect, it was actually for him. The Lord has need of it. You know, they could have said we could use a new TV in our house or we could have gone on a new vacation. We could have taken our family on a cruise. We could have done a lot of different things with this money, but we want to we wanna support the Lord because we feel like the Lord's saying the Lord needs it. Now, I'm being a little more dramatic about it. They were very humble, very gentle, just passing off, but that's what I heard in my heart. I've heard that from so many of you over the years of people who say, well, I was saving some money for X, and, and, but I heard an announcement, someone's going on a missions trip, or I met someone in the church that's doing this, or I found somebody that had a need in their life, and so this extra that came in, this thing that I've been saving for, this thing that I've been hoping to use on something for me, the Spirit of the Lord is tapping my heart and saying, I have need of that right now. How, how, how quick are we to sort of release those resources to the Lord and give that to the Lord. Be spontaneous in, in not sitting there calculating and can I afford this, but Lord, if you put it in my hand, what looks like a blessing for me might just be, I'm the middle person, I'm just gonna push it over here and I'm gonna bless someone in your kingdom, I'm gonna bless your kingdom work. It's great to be a part of that kind of thing. I think people that do that, people that know that, and I want to be, and I'm sure you do too, want to be those kinds of people. Uh, those kinds of people believe in what Scripture says about giving. For example, what Jesus says in Luke, earlier in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, Jesus says, For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted much, much more will be asked. You know, when we're given more, it's not so that we can just have more. It's because God's entrusting us with more so that we can use it for him. 
Earlier in the book of Luke, chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus says again, he says, Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. It will be poured out into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think people like the man that stood with his family in the lobby kind of get that. They understand that. They see the picture of Jesus' sovereignty. And there's times where he says, hey, release that to me. It belongs to me. I want to use it for my kingdom. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10 in the Old Testament, God says to the people, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That's the 10%. That's right off the top of what I make or what I earn. I give 10% back to the Lord. He says that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Wow. It's the only place in God's word where God says, test me on this. I'll be faithful When I ask you to release resources to me, I promise to take care of your needs. And so many of us, we're not not really very flexible in releasing resources. We're struggling through life and we're finding it difficult and maybe the Holy Spirit's wanting to tap at our hearts and say, if you would release things a little more into my hands, God says, I'll show that I can bless and meet every need in your life. And by the way, boy, I pray through statements like that because that should never come across manipulative. It should never be a a give so that you can get more from God. That's sometimes a teaching that you hear on this kind of thing. This is not what God's word is saying. All I'm saying is the picture we get from Jesus, he says when he calls on something to be used for him, it should be released. And when we hear that it's the Lord that has need of it, we should say praise God and let it go. That's what he wants from our lives. We'll be in Matthew 6 in a few weeks. In Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says there, he says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, say it with me, there will your what? Heart be also. What a beautiful picture. Can't wait to get there in Matthew. The reality is a lot of us are storing up treasures for ourselves here. We all got way too much stuff. And we need to release stuff and sometimes sell stuff off and use those resources for the kingdom of God and share it and move it around. All of us need this application in our lives. So in view of the scriptures and what Jesus is showing us, even right here this morning, just listen for the Holy Spirit right now. Is he asking you to release anything to him? Is there anything in your life you're holding just a little too tightly to? And if you hear his voice this morning, then simply respond. Step out and respond to him. The second portrait I see in this passage, back to, back to Luke 19 now, verses 35 and 36, I see here a picture of Jesus' kingliness, or if you're writing down that word, you could also write down royalty, whichever one you prefer. And what I mean by his royalty or his kingliness is that we see his rule and reign over his subjects. Look at verse 35. So they bring this cult to Jesus that had never been written, which is a picture of something very holy, something very set apart, and they throw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it, and as he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. What is this? Well, this is a picture of kingliness. It's a picture of royalty. We have a couple of places in the Old Testament where we see this with kings of Israel as the people throw their garments before the king as a way for him to walk sort of on a privileged place. It's taking what we have and laying it down in front of him, and, and it's, all of this is a picture of willing submission. 
When you see Jesus as king, when you see Jesus as royal, you submit to him. And so that's the response. If you're writing it down, if you're taking notes, we respond in submission to him. Now, there's a version of Christianity out there that has little to do with submitting to anyone, much less Jesus. And I want to be careful about this because I don't want to be misunderstood, but a lot of what I hear in the tones of Christendom today is that if you invite Jesus into your heart, if you come to him and and invite him to be in your life, then really you're going to have all your dreams met and, and actually becomes kind of a vehicle of having your dreams met and having all the fulfillment of your own life. The, the dreams that you have for your own life. And, and I'm not anyway against the fact that God does fulfill, gives us dreams and fulfills those dreams. It's a beautiful thing what the Lord does in our lives. But we don't come to Christ so that he can fulfill our dream. We come to Christ because we're sinners in need of a Savior. And Jesus promises to be that Savior. And when he does become our Savior, he at the same time becomes our Lord. I mean, I I personally don't really believe he can be Savior unless he is Lord. And that Jesus actually has that that throne of our lives. And this is the beauty of conversion. This is the beauty of our salvation, is it not? That we would actually love the thing that we once hated because we're all rebels. We all push God away. We all push Jesus out of our lives. And if by God's grace he gives us a, a, a vision, a wisdom, a, a, a view of his life that we could place our faith and trust in him and that he could actually take his entrance through the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts and shape us and mold us and make us into the people, the men and women that he wants us, women that he wants us to be. Uh, if by chance that God's grace has done that in our lives, then we know he takes up residence and that he is Lord in our hearts. Now, we struggle as we go through life understanding what lordship means and, and we, we follow along and sometimes we fall away from that, but we we continually come back. I mean, let me just ask you a question. Where in our lives today uh, are, we, are we experiencing sort of the, uh, uh, the cost of lordship? The cost of saying, Jesus, not my way, but your way. Remember Jesus in the garden. Father, if this cup could pass, beautiful, but nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Matthew 26. I mean, what, what is it that is in our lives today that we're saying, I, this doesn't feel comfortable, I don't know if I'm going to be happier as a result, but I believe that, that if I'm going to submit to Jesus' lordship, I'm going to have to go this path and, and not that path. And sometimes this path is a path of suffering. Sometimes this is a path where there are difficult things in our journey. I can give you a couple of examples that might help us to see what this might look like. I, I know one uh, uh, gentleman right now that's in a, in a very, very difficult marriage. And by all rights, well, we just looked at marriage in Scripture the last couple of weeks, and really, by all rights, he, he probably has a biblical cause to divorce. His wife has been unfaithful to him. There has not been repentance. But he is hearing from the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God is saying, you wait, you trust me. You love her and you, you serve her. And, and this is a very hard place for him to be. But that's what, that's what lordship looks like. Lordship sometimes goes counter to what our feelings or desires would have us do. I've been in contact with 
one gentleman, one of many this past week who's facing some really difficult physical issues in his life and um, he's been struggling with cancer for the last several years and the last time he went through this whole thing with chemo and radiation, the doctor said, well, we didn't get it all and, and there's really no more we can do. And it appears to be back. There's all kinds of pain in his body. And, and so here's what he said to me this week. He said, you know, I'm praying for the miracle of healing, but I know that it's a miracle that I'll spend eternity with Christ in heaven. Either way, I'm good with it. That's sovereignty. That's lordship. That's Jesus. I, I, I would love this, but Jesus, I submit to you because Jesus, you are king of my life. Where, where in your dialogue with Jesus is that kind of conversation going on? In our sometimes very thin and uh, shallow Christianity, so often it's more about what we want and we are so disappointed with God when he doesn't come through for the things that we want. And there's just this brand, and I, I want to be careful because I don't know where your background is. I don't know what you're dealing with. And I believe that God is a God of miracles, and I believe we should believe by faith that he can do all things. But sometimes his lordship is going to walk us through crucibles and suffering, all for his glory. And subjects of the king know that because he is king and we are merely his subjects. A third picture I want to show you here is in verses 37 through 40 where we get a picture of Jesus' glory. Now here's what happens. As they come near to the place that goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices. I want you to underline, if you have your own Bible, underline the word joyfully and underline the word praise God the phrase, and also in loud voices. Now, they were praising God for the miracles they had seen. This is likely the Galilean believers who are now coming with Jesus into the feast of Passover. And they're singing the songs of ascent. Uh, if you've studied your Old Testament, if you know that the Psalms are sort of broken into, into categories, there is this one section in the Psalms called the Psalms of Hillel, the Psalms of Praise, the Psalms of Ascent, and they represent, I think, chapters 113 through about 118, some believe into the 120s, uh, and these are all Psalms that, that the pilgrims would sing as they were coming into Jerusalem. And one of those psalms, hear a quotation from Psalm 118. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And here, the people are screaming out with their loud voices, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The disciples and those that were in the crowd that day were ascribing Jesus as the fulfillment of Psalm 118. That the one who comes in the name of the Lord is this Jesus, the Messiah, and the reason why they would share that as they came into Jerusalem is because they wanted to remind themselves and each other that we're here in the name of the Lord, not in the name of our stuff, our agenda. And you know, and that's the beautiful thing. When we come and praise the Lord, we come, how, what, what is the focus of our praise? We come in the name of the Lord today. We don't come in the name of neighborhood church or three crosses. We don't come in the name of Christianity, so to speak. We don't come in the name of a pastor or a leader. We don't come in the name of our agenda. We come in the name of the Lord. 
And blessed is that one. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the disciples that day said that Jesus, he's the one that comes. He is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. This is an ascription to Jesus' glory. What's What's the response? The response is to praise him. And boy, do they. Unbridled, exuberant, joyful, expectant praise. All praise. And that's why we love praising God here at Three Crosses. We try to raise the roof with our praise. And we ought to because of what he's done in our lives. He's given us eternal life. He's promised us the the work of the Holy Spirit daily in our lives. The one who lives with us, resides with us. And not only does he give us a here and now beautiful experience, sometimes fraught with pain, sometimes suffering, and yet in the midst of that, we have this overwhelming uh, uh, reality of glory that is ours and glory that will be ours. And no matter how hard life gets, we know that someday we're going to stand before the Lord, the King of glory. We'll praise him forever and ever. Heaven is our destination. Heaven is our home. We're just passing through. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And sometimes we forget that. And one thing that we do when we get together like this today is that we praise him. Why? Because we remember. And we should be reminded. So next time when we're singing, we should sing a little louder. And if someone's not singing next to you, give them a little poke and say, come on. (laughs) Don't forget. I'm just teasing with you that. Don't get too in someone else. But the point is, This is why the Psalms of Hillel were in the Scriptures. We praise the Lord as we come into the mountain of the Lord, into the city of Jerusalem. Joyful praise, heavenward, not toward man. So we see a picture of Jesus' sovereignty. And by the way, isn't it amazing? The disciples were, or Jesus was rebuked by the Pharisees, you know, and and told them to, to quiet his disciples down. And Jesus said, if they quiet down, the stones will cry out. Because The inanimate creation would be awoken to the reality of what was happening right in that moment. Jesus was coming into his passion. And there was to be praise unbridled. I think that was only an echo of what was going on in heaven. That God was sending his son Jesus Christ to that cross at Calvary to give his life. And this was the greatest moment in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it was the fulfillment of God's plan for for eternity past. That there would be a people after his name, a covenant people that would be sealed by his own blood, by the blood of the cross. Romans 4.25 says, he was delivered over to death for our sins. He was raised to life for our justification. And we this week are going to celebrate the crucifixion of Christ. What I mean by that is we realize the value of what Jesus did at the cross. And then we're going to celebrate the risen Christ, that he's alive and that he didn't just rise from the dead on, on Resurrection Sunday and that we sort of put him aside for the rest of our year, but that we serve a living Christ. He's alive today. He's here right now. He sees our hearts and what we need and he knows what's going on in our lives. So, we see his sovereignty, we give to him. We see his royalty, we submit to him. We see his glory, we praise him. And one last thing I want to show you here, this paragraph, verses 41 through 44, is I believe we see a picture of his heart, a picture of his heart. He comes into Jerusalem and he he weeps over Jerusalem. He cries. It's a picture of those who are outside of his covenant and yet shouldn't be. 
invited but refused to come. This entire paragraph is a powerful portrait that all of us should take a closer look. And here's the response I'm gonna suggest to you today. The response should be to possess his heart or imitate his heart. If he lives within us, then we should really own the heart that Jesus has for the lost too. And I know this narrative doesn't carry any real connection to what we see in Jesus and what our response should be. So I'm suggesting to you today that as we look at the life of Jesus, we should at least say, Jesus, because you live in my heart, I mean, would I not feel for the things that you feel for? So let's just walk down through this real quick. This will be real simple. Number one, uh, here's some healthy indicators that our hearts are being transformed or our hearts are imitating the very heart of Jesus. Number one, our hearts break over what breaks his heart. It says that he, as he saw Jerusalem, he wept over it. There's only two places in the Gospels where Jesus is found weeping. Only two places. One in John chapter 11 at the tomb of his good friend Lazarus and the other is right here. Only two places. Now what does that tell us? What is the gospel writers trying to show to us when, it sh- when, they, when they reveal that Jesus actually wept? Well, I believe that it shows something very simple. In Lazarus' case, Jesus is weeping over the condition of what our hearts, the condition of our hearts that leads to, to death. And Jesus, in seeing death, wept over that reality and then here he weeps over the reality of unbelief i i would say that death and unbelief are serious matters to the life of jesus death and unbelief only places he wept in the gospels when a good friend of his died and when he saw unbelief so what should touch our hearts what should cause us our hearts to break well certainly death and we don't have to really learn much about that we know our hearts break with those that lose loved ones or when we lose loved ones. But does our heart break for unbelief? I think it's interesting that some of us have been a little calloused. I know in my own life I can get calloused. I can forget there's a whole group of people out there that need to know Jesus. And if Jesus wept over them, when was the last time I wept for anybody that needed Christ? It's a good question to ask ourselves. To give a heart, the heart that Jesus had for people. The second thing that I think is a healthy indicator that we have Jesus' heart is that we pursue relationships with lost people and look for opportunities to share the good news of the gospel. It says in verse 42, Jesus said, if you, and he's speaking to Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, and now it is hidden from your eyes. You know, Jesus is pointing out here that unbelief fosters unbelief, and unbelief fosters hardening of heart. And that's why we want to get to know people that don't know Christ because it's going to, it maybe take a little time for people to let the Spirit of God work on their hearts so that, so that by God's miracle alone, he can open their eyes to see their need for salvation. In the, in the Greek text, it's interesting, there's the emphatic conjunction here, you, especially you, you of all others, you. I wonder if this could be maybe likened to people who who raised in the church, grew up in the church, walked away from God. Jesus might say to people like that, you and especially you. If you only knew who stood before you, if you only knew who is right in your presence right now. And some of us might leave a service like this or some other place or in our quietness with our own lives and just excuse away, oh, that couldn't be God. Or I, you know, I, we dismiss the voice of God, we push the voice of God away. Because hard hearts get harder. 
except for the grace and mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we look for ways to connect with people that are outside of faith so that we can love on them and serve them and care for them and do things that would perhaps show them that Jesus has a heart for them too. A third thing I see is that we lovingly warn those who do not believe that judgment is coming. Jesus said days will come when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. Jesus was prophesying the end of Jerusalem the end of Jerusalem as a city that worshiped God where, where the Romans came in and, and, and uh, took over 70 AD and pummeled the temple and destroyed the temple, destroyed the very vehicle of worship that the people of God had had for years. Jesus was warning them that judgment was coming. Do we lovingly warn loved ones that there's a judgment that's coming? And the judgment has actually, actually already been meted out on his son Jesus Christ. The full fury of God has rested on Jesus who is the Christ. And the only safe place to be is in Christ Jesus. I like like what Corey Ten Boom used to say. She used to say that the, the only place where a furious fire has burned is to be where it is already burned. For the full fury of the fire can never come back and burn anymore what's there. When you place faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are placed in Christ where the full fury of God's wrath has fallen, never again to fall on Jesus Christ. You're safe in him. And lastly, we don't waste time when it comes to leveraging the gospel. There's this little time element in the last part of verse 44 where Jesus says, because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. There's a time, there's a time. That, might be, that time might be for you today, today, right now. Knowing that there's a time in people's lives, we don't waste it. We leverage it. We use it. We invite people. We encourage people. We serve people. Is that what's going on in your life today? I hope so. I want that to be in my life more. You know, I, every week, if I don't preach, uh, every week, I look for a, an opportunity to invite people to church. Every week. But I, I chicken out at times. God tees something up perfectly for me and I walk right past it. That happens in your life too. But every week I look for an opportunity to invite someone to church. I want to encourage you with that. Here's, here's what will happen if you do. First of all, you'll bless a lot of people in your life if they come because God's going to speak to them. It'll be good. But another thing it'll do, it'll help you to know how to pray for this church, our church, even more. When you're sitting with a guest, you look at everything going on in a whole different light because you're so concerned about what they're going to experience. I mean, how would it be if you were sitting with a guest and somebody walked up and said, hey, you're sitting in my seat? You would be horrified. Or what if when they come into the parking lot, somebody was just kind of gruff and mean with them? You'd be horrified. When you bring a guest to church, you, you sort of listen with different ears and you pray and you say, oh God, help our pastor to be good today. <laughs> we need a miracle, Lord. <laughs> you think differently because your eyes are on someone that needs Jesus. That's why a lot of us are dull in our faith and a lot of us just complain about the way things are. 
because we're not sitting with people that need Jesus. And by the way, we all need Jesus equally. I need Jesus as much as the person out there that's never met him. And so do you. So here we are. It's a great season. Let's have the heart of Jesus. See his sovereignty, give to him. See his kingliness, submit to him. See his glory, praise him. See his heart, imitate him. Let's pray.